blessing to each one attending that you would enact some change in us that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke 1, beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. You may be seated. So I, I'm going to work with some of the sentences in this um, passage and I've got five points I'm, I'm going to touch upon. And it's not going to be in order chronologically in accordance with the passage, but that's okay. Verse 42 mentions about Elizabeth. And she exclaimed with a loud cry. Before that, it said she was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud voice or loud cry. And then verse 46 starts with the words, And Mary said, and then she went on with, My soul magnifies the Lord with this long, beautiful um, song or verse. So I find it interesting. You've got two women here, and they're in private. And they're prophesying to each other. In the last days, they're prophesying to each other. The whole world's about to be changed. And up to this point, only a few people really know about it. They're getting these hints. They're getting these words from God and angels. Hundreds of years before, 
the prophet Joel had forecast that the Holy Spirit's work was coming with this new covenant work. And so on the day of Pentecost, right, after Jesus has ascended, sent his Holy Spirit to his people, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes from, quotes from Joel about what was going on with them when the Holy Spirit came into them. It says there that God declared, in the last days, it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And and Peter was saying, this is Joel. It's being fulfilled here today. And he said, in these last days, back in the first century, or whatever century we were were then, 33rd or whatever. First century, 33rd year. So Elizabeth and Mary are, are pretty much involved on the ground floor here. They have become quiet key players in the last days as the times of Messiah are being ushered in. Elizabeth's child, she's gonna, he's going to clear the path, John the Baptist. Mary's little boy will then walk down it. I, I think it's interesting how to change all things to good because that's what Jesus would do. He would make all things new. He'll change all things to good. It's interesting how God chose these two meek women, and they're tucked away in a house, one old, one young. It is, it is unobtrusive. There's no fanfare. I love that. And as to the meaning of that phrase, last days, contrary to popular opinion, the last days does not mean at the end of the world. It means in the days of Messiah. We're in those days, the days of Messiah. You see, the the first advent, when he came as a babe, that started the last days, or end days, okay, the final phase. Let's say it like that. The last days is the final phase. When Messiah would be seated on David's exalted throne, on his heavenly throne, to rule over men and women and nations. We've been told by the prophets of old how in the latter days of history, the last days, all authority would be given to the son of David, the Lord. And here it is in Elizabeth's house or Zechariah's house at its inception. In the home of a wife of a priest, 
where two pregnant women are sharing their joy. It's God's way, unobtrusive. The still small voice, the mustard seed. I love that. Rarely does God feel the need to impress the mighty or the majority. When he loses patience with them, however, he breaks them off like a branch. Yet he finds pleasure and he is exalted when the humble carry the ball. And as you, you and I will see, this truth isn't lost on Mary. It's not lost on her. She gets it. Which brings me to my second point. Verse 43, she says, And why is this granted to me? Elizabeth saying this. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord. She considered herself somehow privileged that Mary would come to stay with her. Of course, Mary was just a woman, a younger woman. She was not, she was not the treasure. The one inside of her was the treasure. Indeed, Elizabeth, she probably should have felt a little bit like the Ark of the Covenant had just been brought into her living room. We, now we see how the Roman Catholic Church, right, inappropriately began to exalt Mary beyond her proper measure, more than just a woman. John Calvin, our theological founder, right, accused Rome of turning Mary into an idol. And it's a fair argument. Calvin wrote, the consequence has been that the first rank is assigned to Mary and Christ is lowered, as it were, to a footstool. Now, Greek Orthodox Church esteems Mary too, but not in the same way as the Roman Catholic Church. And I'll tell you, it's not uncommon for men to turn a thing into an idol. You and I have doubtless done it ourselves. The Roman Catholic mistake is similar actually to the mistake of the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. What did they do? The scribes and the Pharisees, they began to idolize the gold as if it were greater than God's temple. And the sacrifice of the of the lamb or whatever animal, as greater than the altar upon which the sacrifice was given. They got all kind of messed up, turned around. Jesus called them blind men because they, they actually traded the prize for, for the wrappings of it. Like, like a child setting aside the Christmas gift to play with the box that, that it came in. 
But both Elizabeth and Mary realized the prize was inside of her. Mary was not the prize. However, God did show her favor by permitting her to carry inside of her his son, her, her Lord. It was Jesus who would effect the great rescue. He would save the people from their sins. He would bring the good and be put upon the throne. Make no mistake, Jesus was the prize. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy about the mystery of godliness. He said, God, has, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, capital S, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. 1 Timothy 3.16. And you might say that Mary, for a short while, served as a temple, for God inhabited her. She was God's temple, but in a different way than you and I are God's temple, because we're, we're considered God's temple as well. We become God's temple or part of God's temple now because the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and makes us part of his church, of Jesus' church. Mary, too, she received the Holy Spirit. She was made part of that temple. Elizabeth as well. And all the church saints of history are part of that temple, the temple of God. Also, Jesus is in his heavenly temple. Heavenly paradise. And those who have passed on ahead, who were part of his temple, are now with him. But it was in that living room that things kind of got started. Brings me to my third point. Verse 41 says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Oh, oh, to be like little preborn John, eager to get to get to it, right? If you remember somewhere else, it says John had the Holy Spirit in him even from birth, and the Spirit knew the Spirit knew John's mission. So it's as if the Spirit were saying, "Let's get started, John." Let's get started. We cannot say what John was thinking inside of mom. But we do know that when God wants to inspire, when God wants to inspire and animate, no one can prevent it. It, He's irresistible. And so I say, friends, whenever a Christian, okay, a young Christian or an old Christian wants to do things for the Lord, You should encourage them. You should encourage them. No matter how out there it seems it might be. It doesn't mean your encouragement is writing them a blank check. But you should encourage them. All too often, 
We're quick to snuff out the wick. Let the wick burn. All too often we talk ourselves out and others out of good ideas that will press forward for Christ's kingdom and we do nothing about it. I say never let yourself be blamed for trying to douse a fire started by God's Spirit. Brings me to my fourth point. In verse 50, Mary says his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In verse 54 and 55, he says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She says that God's mercy is for those who fear him, not those who disregard him. And I think it's important for church people to be reminded of that. She says his mercy is for those who fear him, not for those who disregard him. No Christian should disregard God and what he wants. We should never be cavalier about the things God has said and done as if we can take them or leave them. To have such an attitude is to treat him as less than God. Or as if you don't really want to be part of his family. That's always an option. You don't want to be part of his family? Okay, don't be. Think about it this way. I love my children, and Tracy and I have worked through the years not, we've worked through the years to put food on the table, pay bills, provide a home and education for each one. We brought them to worship, we work alongside of them even today. Everything we have at our disposal, I feel like it also is for their benefit. Now, say that one of them decided, I no longer, I no longer want to be a GAPA. I want to leave the family business. I will not be present at family gatherings. I will cut myself off from my siblings. I want to live a life according to other rules with other people. Not the rules taught to me, not my people. I made new friends online. I met them in the workplace when I went to college, whatever the case may be. People that understand and accept me. They are my family now. I plan to move out of the area even. Well, I ask you then, should that member of the family expect to be treated as a GAPA? Should they watch the mailbox if that's their decision? Should they watch the mailbox for presents from home on a birthday or at Christmas? 
Should the person expect that the other family members will have the same hopes and dreams and feelings for them as when they grew up in our home as a loving child? It's more likely that, that we will pray incessantly for him or her. For we've, be, we've become discarded and are now broken hearted. But when we die, okay, should that person expect to get his or her fair share of the family inheritance? The answer to all of that is no. No. They get nothing. If they're not a Gappa, they're not a Gappa. And it's in this way I believe Mary speaks of God's mercy. It is for those who fear him. The ones who are glad that they can call him Father, Father. Those are the ones that fear him. Those are the ones to whom he shows mercy. Now Mary's not saying that God's mercy is for his perfect children. That he only shows mercy to those without fault, those who've always obeyed. If that were the case, he would not show mercy to anyone. In fact, the very concept of mercy comes from the fact that the person deserves to be punished, but God has graciously relented. Graciously relented. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone shown towards someone by one who has the power and the right to punish or harm. And surely we all know it's within God's power and right to punish and harm us. Yet Mary says he shows mercy to those who fear him. So if our offspring determines to remain a Gappa and to keep within the boundaries of familial love and dutifulness, even though he or she cannot do it perfectly, then we will bind ourselves to them and extend all the benefits of being a Gappa to them. Why? For we love our children and our two daughters-in-law and our grandchildren and all that belong to the household. But it is presumed, it is presumed and assumed that they love us in return. So that what we give as parents, we give to them. Make no mistake, it is unwise for anyone to presume upon God's mercy. Indeed, a Christian who goes about living a life of sin, while assuring himself, himself, God must forgive me, I am a Christian. That's like a child who has already moved out of his parents' home begun to live by different rules and looks for reasons not to stop for a visit 
They might still call themselves by the family name, but it is apparent that they want nothing of it. In their minds, they have put into their billfold a license to sin. Such a person can hardly be called a Christian, can they? But to fear God, as Mary says, looks something more like what King David wrote in Psalm 103, 17. To fear God looks like this. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Seems like Mary was quoting David. And that there is your Christian, who God identifies as one of his own. Final point. Verse 36 says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And then later, verse 56 closes out the passage with, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Did Mary stay until John's birth? Yeah, it's likely. It's likely she was helping out. I believe that's why we're given the time durations in these two verses. So when Mary gets pregnant, she's told Elizabeth is already in her sixth month. Then she goes to Elizabeth's home and spends three months visiting with her. And that would have brought, what, Elizabeth to full term. John Calvin believes this was the case. He writes, for it's probable that she had no other reason for staying so long but to enjoy the exhibition of divine grace with this other woman until she gave birth. It's God's way again. He puts us together, encourages godly fellowship, and people with like-minded faith, encouraging one another, participating in faith's progress. It's all about that. We, we grow especially close to others when we work side by side with them in an effort for the kingdom. So you can imagine how important such encouragement was for these two women who awkwardly are carrying babies, awkwardly. One in their old, old age, it's like, you're kidding me, Elizabeth's pregnant? How could that happen? And the other, out of wedlock. You're kidding me. Mary? One would be humanity's, one of the children, would be humanity's great herald, of the Christ, and that was John. And the other would be humanity's only hope of forgiveness and the one who would make all things good again. And that is our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity in worship to reflect upon your word, 
upon the conversation, the prophetic conversation between these two women. You're a great God. 